You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Hawkins, and I'm excited to be in the studio with my co-hosts, Elizabeth. Hey. And Tamarcus. What up? I feel like it's been a while, guys. I don't know Since why. Since we've all been Since together. Since we've all been together. True. And so I'm excited. Feels and right. I'm, I said this before we started recording, I am geeking out pretty hard mm-hmm. uh, because of today's topic and who we have with us. So we are going to have a conversation with Matthew T. Martins. He's a defense lawyer, former federal prosecutor, former law clerk for the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, which if you're not if you're not like in the legal world, that's about the biggest deal you can get. So he's an author of a book called Reforming Criminal Justice, which I don't I, I know we say this a lot. I cannot commend this book to you any mm. higher than than I know how to, which is just to say you need to buy it and read it as a Christian. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you for for joining us and talking to us about your book. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Okay, we gave the uh, we always do this with our guests. We sort of gave the book jacket bio, but is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners about yourself? I went to seminary. You uh, did, yes. In addition to being a lawyer, I am a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. I went there as a part-time whoop, whoop, student whoop. from, yeah, go Dallas, <laughs> yeah. uh, go DTS. <laughs> I went there from 2007 to 2010 as part-time student at an extension campus in Atlanta while I was getting, while I was working as a prosecutor. So mm. I tried to bring that to bear on this as well. Yeah. All around overachiever is what I'm hearing. <laughs> That's awesome. And and you can tell in the book that obviously your faith, but your theological training influences it really heavy. I think I think your unique training and background really is the only way to write a book like this. Mm. So maybe I could start just by asking the question, why, what led you to write this book? You've been working in this field for a long time. You're a successful lawyer you choose to undertake a monumental task in writing a really important book. What led you here? I didn't have any aspirations to write a book. I wasn't an aspiring author for my whole life, just (laughs) looking for that break. It was more a product of need and pastors, some of my pastors urging me to do it. So if you kind of back up to 2014 with the events in Ferguson, Missouri, sort of Mm. really set off a conversation in our country that continued and continues really till today. And in our culture at large, back in 2014, and in, and in my church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, there was a lot of discussion around policing and criminal justice issues and racial disparities. And and so one of my pastors, Isaac Adams, who's now a pastor down in Birmingham, Alabama, but what it but was at Capitol Hill Baptist at the time. He and his wife and I and my wife went out to dinner, and Isaac was like, "You got to." criminal law background, you've got a seminary degree, like you should write something, you could be helpful here. And I really didn't have time at the time. And so I kind of blew him off a bit. (laughs) But then a year later, I got invited by a former CHPC uh, 
church member who was then teaching at Southwest Baptist University to come give their Constitution Day speech. And I was like, can I talk about whatever I want? And I'll try not to get you fired. And he's like, yeah, you can You can talk about whatever you want. So I gave a speech entitled, Why Tough on Crime is Neither Christian Nor Conservative. And then the a law journal at Notre Dame published the speech. And that was kind of the first time I put pen to paper on what things I had been thinking about for a long time about the criminal justice system. So then fast forward another five years, George Floyd, and, you know, we have, you know, an intense conversation and protests and otherwise in the country. And so another one of my former pastors, Garrett Kell, who's now a pastor in Alexandria, Virginia, he's one of my best friends. And he's like, you really should write something. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have any aspirations to write a book. I don't know how to write a book. I don't have any connections in publishing. And he's, I don't even know how you go talk to a publisher about an idea. And so he was able to connect me with some publishers and get me a proposal, kind of like, what's a book proposal look like? I don't know. I've never done this before. So he gave me an example. And so I wrote up a five-page book proposal. I wrote up a chapter and sent it off and uh, got a lot of interest. And so here I am today now, nearly three years later, having finished it. Mm. (laughs) Well, you cover so much ground in the book. I mean, the first half is ethics, and I want to get into that a little bit. The second half is history. You make a proposal for what we as Christians can do as we consider the argument. But I want to, maybe before we dive into that, you said, you, you mentioned a lot um, and guys, I'm sorry, jump in. I told oh, you, you're going to have to, come on, you're going to have to elbow your way in here. Um, you are trying to avoid the expert creep here. You know, so I'm, I'm the in-studio learner. This is great. You mentioned a lot, George Floyd, the, the racial tensions and, and horrible sort of injustices happening around the country and, and just the ways that that has now this conversation seems to be permeating all of politics as we go into an, the next election year. You you talk about like you hear uh, catchphrases like law and order candidates yeah. and things like that. It feels like criminal justice in a sense is everywhere right now, mm-hmm. w- whether you know it or not. It's touching on this topic. And yes. I, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the uniqueness of criminal justice in the American psyche. I don't, that's probably the wrong way to ask the question, but I'm thinking primarily about the things like what is unique about America and criminal justice? The number of people we incarcerate, the complex racial history is a fascination. Like I've, I've traveled a little bit, not a ton, but I can tell you, like, I feel like America has more law and order shows and those kind of things than most other countries do. Of course they have them, but it's like, there seems to be something deep in us when it comes to crime and punishment. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you put your finger on something very important. I mean, I've I said in a speech recently that if sex sells, as they say in marketing, mm. crime campaigns, mm. uh, you know, when you get to election season, you're going to inevitably see every time that lots of uh, new spots or talking heads opining on spiking crime rates, you know, and they'll start highlighting this crime or that crime because they know that fear motivates people. And so it certainly plays a role in political campaigns. It's also true that people have strong ideological views about this, whether on the left or the right. I mean, we have the phrases law and order conservative and bleeding heart liberal, right? And they're used to refer to different ideological positions on this. And what I'm trying to argue is that as Christians, our obligation is to take every thought captive Mm. to the word of Christ. 
that there's no topics where we get to say, well, I have political views on that, and I, there's no Christian element to that, that that there there is a Christian element to criminal justice. And I'm trying to ask people to step back and say, whatever your ideological predisposition, if you're a Christian, have you thought about what the Christian principles are that bear on this topic? Because there's no, as a Christian, there's no part of my life in which I get to not be a Christian. And that includes when it comes to criminal justice and voting on those issues or talking about those issues or maybe working in those areas. And 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 our country, as you point out, has a unique history on criminal justice, both for good and for bad. So if you start with the American Revolution, it's fantastic what our country did. It was literally revolutionary when it comes to criminal justice. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, we often think of the American Revolution as motivated by tea taxes and the Boston Tea Party, and that's certainly true. But if you read the Declaration of Independence, and Independence, the colonists had beefs with King George III over criminal justice. They complain in the Declaration of Independence about the denial of the right to jury trial, about the absence of an independent judiciary. And so those were issues very much at the forefront of the American Revolution. And you see this even in the first Congress when they adopt the first Bill of Rights. I think in 1791, when Madison introduces the first Bill of Rights and then they're, they're adopted as the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, you've got an enormous amount of that Bill of Rights is about criminal justice. The Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause, the Fifth Amendment Right to Remain Silent, the Sixth Amendment Right to an Attorney, the Sixth Amendment Right to Confront Witnesses Against You, the Sixth Amendment, or the, the I think it's the Fifth Amendment Right to an Indictment before you're tried on a criminal charge, the Eighth Amendment Right to Bail, the Eighth Amendment pro Protection Against Cruel and Unusual Punishments, the Fourth mm -hmm. Amendment Protection Against Unreasonable Searches and Seizures. I mean, you, it's, it's amazing how much of the Bill of Rights is devoted to mm -hmm. concerns that the the colonists had and, and ultimately the early Americans had about the criminal justice system. And so and so you have a lot to be proud of as an American mm. about what, what we did in revolutionizing literally that area. And yet at the same time, our history of living up to those laudable principles is at times tragic. The, and I write about this in the book, in the history section, that the criminal justice system after this, <clears throat> after the Civil War was used to reverse the effects of the war. Right. It was when they say when people say the North won the war and the South won the peace. What they mean is that through various mechanisms after the war, the South was able to undo much of what was accomplished through the war. And the primary mechanism that was used was the criminal justice system by over-prosecuting recently emancipated slaves, over-prosecuting blacks, and under-prosecuting whites who were engaged in racial violence against African-Americans. And so the criminal justice system was used to establish convict leasing, which was really, as Douglas Blackman says in his award-winning book, Slavery by Another Name. You have the criminal justice system used to disenfranchise African-American voters through through using felony disenfranchisement and then made up crimes like vagrancy and otherwise as means to disenfranchise voters. And so the criminal justice system was very much used and abused from the end of the war in 1865 through at least the civil rights movement in 1965 
to to try to overturn the effects, the, the good result of the Civil War. I mean, Martin Luther King's writing extensively in the 1960s about the abuses of the criminal justice system and its its use against African Americans in particular. And so so we have some some revolutionary and amazing mm -hmm positive moments and we have some deeply nefarious moments in our history of criminal justice in America. Trying to make sense of all of that. Yes. It's hard, right? Yeah. It's well, like it's, 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 it's sin. Yeah, right. It's the, it's the fallen human Amen. nature, right? That we, yeah. that we do good things and we do bad things. That sin wars within us and I don't think we should be surprised that we see that play out in our country, that there's sin infects everything. Right. Yeah. And and even redeemed people struggle with sin. Redeemed people played a role in, in some of these injustices. Right. And so yeah. it, it's it, I think we as Christians actually have an explanation for it. We do. Mm -hmm. We do. I think what's hard is trying to convince people in this history that there's a through line, meaning I yes. could hear the retort to some of the history you laid out be like, yeah, that was the civil war. We were bad back then. But if you look now, exactly. we've gone through the, the, you know, we, we've went through the civil rights movement and you mentioned Dr. King and yay, we've done so much and it's imperfect, but we don't do that anymore. And it's like trying to say, well, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Some of the things about today can't be ignored. There's still, some of not just impact, but some of the moves. Yeah, the mechanisms yeah. that were put in right, place right, are right, still right, running. Right, right. Yeah, mechanisms and ideas because right. we don't live in a vacuum. And right. so who we are today is based upon who we have been. Right. You know, and I just think even from hearing, you know, I love history. And so just to hearing yes. you kind of provide clarity, right, about the connection of things, to me, it's humility, mm. yes. right? As believers to recognize we are no we are in some sense are still living in a sin-infected world. And so have the same propensity to make the same decisions that in some sense dishonor image bearers. And so that we would have eyes to see our history currently like that, but be willing to see the past like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think mean, sin didn't end in 1965. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and nor did the criminal justice system get delivered to us in 1966. Right. Sort of, right. The criminal justice system is a series of decisions made for hundreds of years that have generated the system we have today. And so you, you have mechanisms that were created for nefarious purposes. Like, for example, just to take one example, the Louisiana back during what the period called redemption. So I'm sure people know, you know, you have the Civil War, then you have this period called Reconstruction, where we're trying to put the country back together in a just way. And that fails in 1877, followed by a period called redemption, meaning the South was going to redeem itself, but not in a not in a good redemption way, but sort of mm -hmm. recover its way of life. And so a number of states in the South held constitutional conventions where they explicitly state in the constitutional convention opening session that their purpose is to reestablish white supremacy in the United States or in their state. And one of the ways in which they do that is through non-unanimous juries, the, because the point was we're going to try to keep African-Americans off the juries so that we can over prosecute blacks and under prosecute whites. But if we can't keep all the African-Americans off, if one or two slip by, if we allow for non-unanimous juries, we can nullify their votes even if they're on the juries and that non-unanimous jury system established in in states like louisiana existed until the supreme court struck it down like two years ago yeah and so you know you can't say oh everything got fixed in in 1965 i'd make one other point in april 4th 1968 martin luther king jr is assassinated 
He is at the time one of the most reviled people in America. It's hard for us to picture that today because of how revered he is. But at the time, he had like a 20% approval rating. Mm. That summer, a major party presidential candidate runs for president on a platform opposing the civil rights movement. He called it law and order. You know, we call it the Southern strategy. Mm-hmm. He runs on a on a president on a, a presidential candidate runs on a platform opposing the civil rights movement months after MLK is is assassinated. And that candidate wins. And that candidate is in his first term of office the year I'm born. And so if we want to say everything's changed, we need to recognize it's changed in my lifetime Mm -hmm. for the most part. This is not ancient history that the change that's occurred is relatively recent change. I remember being a public defender. I both worked in the public defender's office in Dallas and in Dorchester in Boston. This is not it's. I'm older than I used to be, so it's a long time ago, but it's it's not, it's like 10 years ago, old, 15 years ago, maybe kind of old. And uh, I think what's hard, just maybe putting the inside view of what the mechan, what this machine looks like, you know, when you're on the inside of it, it really is like a lot of people that like are just, you know, individually, like it's good people, they're smart people, they're doing a job, et cetera. But I can tell you, like, I could probably count on one hand. I work both in the felony division in Dallas and the misdemeanor division in Dorchester. I could probably count on one hand the amount of white people I saw come through. This idea of over-policing. I remember being in Dorchester misdemeanor division, and it was like all the things my friends were doing in high school and college, like drugs and partying and getting in fights. We never... I mean, if you got in trouble, you maybe got a slap on the wrist, right? Maybe. And all I saw all these black kids being arrested and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And I remember it did something. To, I started to ask, like, wait a second, I, why are we doing like this? Isn't how how do all these guys end up in jail when all my friends were doing the same thing and nobody cared? You know, so the idea of over prosecution. Then in the felony division, you have so many cases, all both sides, just so many cases, overwhelming. And you're just moving things along. You don't have time to think about conceptions of justice and these kind of bigger implications. You're just kind of going forward with it. So the idea of like, how can this kind of stuff persist till two years ago? It's like, because because the whole machine's kind of moving in a direction. And it's hard for people to picture that, but it's like, I, I, I could tell story after story about, the, about what happens on the inside and in how it just kind of fractures your spirit, you know? I I, yeah. I think we, we could talk a little bit more about this, but I do want to ask the question. I think some people may think the connection between criminal justice and the gospel is tenuous. They might, they might, and you do a really good job in the book of making this, this connection concrete for us. But it's like, you know, if you talk to a typical Christian and you're like, what's the gospel mean for like the courtroom or like how we think about crime? You may get something, but it's it's probably most people maybe aren't thinking about that. Could could you maybe talk about the connection between the criminal justice system and the gospel as you do in the book? Yeah. So I think where you have to start is what is the gospel? I think there's a tendency in some circles, probably in our circles and evangelical circles, conservative evangelical circles to define the gospel in a very individualistic way, a very individualistic salvation, as opposed to seeing it as more cosmic. So I think that's sort of one element, which I'll spin out here in a second. And the other is, I think that there's a tendency 
particularly in more reformed leaning circles to define salvation as entirely the doctrine of justification. And that's certainly not how the reformers thought of it. Calvin writes in his institutes that they about the double grace of the gospel being sanctification and justification in that order, interestingly. And you can look at any number of passages in, in scripture that make that point, whether it's Ephesians 2.10, unto good works. The point of your salvation was good works. It is not works by which we are saved. It is works to which we are saved. Mm. And and so if, if you have a wrong conception of what the gospel is, that you view it as very individualistic and you view it as declared right and forgiven of my sins, and you don't see the good news as he who sits on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. To use N.T. Wright's, you know, the day the revolution began, the revolution has already begun. Right. It's not fully here, but it's begun. He is already making th all things new and beginning by making us new. And if you make to make us new fundamentally means to make us just, not mm. just to declare us just before God, but to make us into just people, to make us into an ethical people. And and just not only in our one-on-one our -on -one interactions with other people, but just in our ways that we seek to structure society, that we, 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 we try to, as believers, structure society. We should anyway, as believers, try to structure society in a way that aligns with God's justice. And there's many ways in which Christians do this, right? And you take abortion, for example, you know, Christians seek to change the law about abortion because they want to organize society in a just way when it comes to that issue. And, and that's fantastic, but that's not the only way that society can be unjust. Society can be unjust in the way that we organize society to bear the sword, to use Paul's words, against wrongdoers. And we need to organize society as Christians seek to organize society, seek to influence the justice of a criminal justice system to make sure that the sword is being born in a way that is just to our fellow citizens and just as God defines justice. There's a lot in scripture that tells us about what legal justice looks like or principles from which we can infer what legal justice looks like. And so if, if salvation is making me into a new person, making me into an ethical person, making me into a just person, then, then, then I should be a person who is living justly, seeking justice by the power of the Spirit in all realms of life, whether that's abortion or economic policy or criminal or just my one-on-one -on -one interactions with other people. All of those should be influenced by the gospel that, that makes me just. You know, when I think about that, I think about even what we read in the Old Testament and we read with God's laws or commandments to Israel and you know, how they give us this picture of what you just said, of God seeking to try to make them different than the nations around them mm -hmm. by making them a just and ethical people and really justice and ethics of what it means to show up in the world is connected to who God is and this love for him and this, this honor for image bearer and how that was supposed to distinguish them from the nations around that were just doing some pretty horrific things. And the sad part about Israel's story is that they started to show up like the other nations and what we see fall apart outside of just not worshiping God is how they would treat their community. Yeah. And people suffered. Like, if they did not live in a just way and communities suffered because they were not walking in the way of God. And yeah, like that the picture of just this cosmic redemption. There's yes. an 
article, and I think someone quotes Tim Keller. I don't know where the quotes come from, but what he talks about is just, it's not just me, but us, and that God is not, he is He is saving us and restoring the world. Yeah. And like the revolution has already started. It's not finished yet, but it just brings this really big and powerful picture of what it means to walk in the way of Jesus to me that I, I think our moment really needs. Yeah, and it, it, it stresses the important, like God's not just going he's not about just going through the motions, right? Like, and I, I always think about Isaiah where he's, right, when he's rebuking the people, he's like, you know, all the like festivals and new moons and what like, like it's not doing anything. It's not it's not changing the way that we live and operate as a community. Like for for you all, for Israel to be a picture of, of God's redemption to the nations wasn't just a, you're a special people. And by virtue of being special, it's like, no, like I'm going to do a special thing among you. And as people witness, wow, like this is a different way of being in the world where where society looks different than it does here, that that will be winsome and it will point people to God. And there's, yeah, and it and, and the thing that upset him was he was like, there's like, there's no justice among you. Like the least, the least among you are, are distressed and you, you, and you are inciting mechanisms that make it even more difficult. And it's like, Oh, God cares about those. Like that's not a peripheral idea, but rather it's something that it offends God. Again, like you said, it's it's sin. There's there's biblical categories for it, and but God also has antidote for it, and it's a it's a matter of us seeing the whole picture. I love I love the way you you frame that. Yeah, I mean, you back up to just Genesis one. I mean, you see two things there. One, we're made in the image of God, and to be in the image of God is to image God, to image what he is like, to reflect what God is like, and God is just. And then men and women are told to go and have dominion over the earth, to govern. And so we're we're in the very first passage of the Bible told, go govern and do it in the image of God, do it reflecting what God is like. And that's really what I'm trying to explain in in the in my book is to say, well, what did God tell us his justice looks like? And so if we're going to go have dominion in these areas, how do we do it in the image of God? We are saying a lot of things that I think could make the typical conservative evangelical nervous. <laughs> and I say that with love, right? And compassion. It's like the 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 world of outrage. I mean, we talk about this a lot on the show, the world of outrage we exist in, some of the excesses of maybe identity politics or some of these things. Like it, 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 does, it doesn't look great, right? But, and so we're talking about racism. We're talking about civil rights movement. We're talking about things today that have been shaped so much by the political conversation that they've lost. I, I don't know. It's, it's more talked about sort of pejoratively and in the context of outrage than it is like true history. So I want to just loving, like, you know, believing the best about how to enter into this conversation, talk about the argument that I think we as Christians, which you do in the book, all get behind really easily, which is this idea, a couple things. One, you talk about the government. You talk about the government's role. You talk about Romans 13, the, the, the right of the government to bear the sword, the, the idea that at the end of every law is a coercive, violent power of the government, right? Like the, the only reason we do that people, not the only reason, but what backs up the government's authority is the sword in a sense, right? But at the same time, and I loved how you talked about this, the Romans 13 also calls the government to be just, 
it's only it's only a good government that should be allowed to bear the sword this way. You know, you're talking about Isaiah and what it means for when the government's unjust and people aren't flourishing. And then you connect and the arguments in the book, I'm not doing it justice, but I think all Christians would say, okay, I can get behind the idea that the gov- one of the government's roles is to restrain evil and to promote good. They do that because of the power given to them by God and because and, and what gives them that authority is that they are good and just and representing God's divine authority, mediating it in a sense on earth. All right, so we've got some political theology here. And then behind that, we say, well, what's really the end of criminal justice? What's what's re- what really, when we're talking about this, punishing crimes and you know coming up with laws like, Okay, we're getting heady. What's the point of all of this? You know, if you if you do some some philosophy work here, you know, the the typical answers are things like to deter people from committing more crimes, to keep people who are, you know, repeat offenders from being able to harm people again, maybe to reform people. That's certainly something that's been I, I would say more fashionable in the last few decades that that the point of of criminal justice is to rehabilitate people that that wasn't always true <laughs> people didn't always talk about it that way maybe the the one thing you've heard is like to give people what they deserve eye for an eye or something like that so what you do though matt is you say wait a second those those may all be a, a piece but what the bible says this is about is love primarily neighbor love. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that might be one of the most compelling pieces of the, I was just captivated by this and thought, man, I, I could mine that idea forever. And you, and you do such a good job of that. So yeah. Well, so if you back up, you, you, I mentioned before Genesis 1, and you've got this discussion about having dominion over the earth and doing it in the image of God. You fast forward into the Pentateuch and you've got at times, a criminal law being laid out there in portions of the Old Testament law. You have discussions in Proverbs about what you do with people who are evil. You have the prophets speaking about this. Woe to those who declare unjust decrees, Isaiah says in Isaiah 10. And and so you, you look at all that and you say, well, is there some unifying theme here? And Jesus answers that question mm. in the Gospels when repeatedly he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? Or in Matthew 22, or how do I inherit eternal life? He's asked by a lawyer in Luke 10. And the answer is the same both both times. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he says in Matthew 22, that sums up the entirety of the law. So now, now I back up and say, well, wait a minute. So when I was told to image God and have dominion, when I was told to, when Israel was told to operate a criminal code in this way, when Genesis 9 says, he who sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. When Isaiah says, woe to those who declare unjust decrees, you're telling me all of that was about loving God and loving neighbor. Mm. And he says, yeah, the whole law hangs on that. That's the anchoring peg. In other words, all of those specifics that you see throughout the Old Testament are applications, are implementations of what it means to look like, to love God and to love your neighbor. And so my goal in criminal justice is, is not to deter, as criminal lawyers say, or incapacitate or, or, or retribution. My goal my ultimate goal is to love. Mm. Now, 
Deterring may be how I love in a particular context. Incapacitating may be how I love in a particular context. Retribution may be how I love in it. But the goal isn't retribution. The goal isn't to take an eye because you took my eye. The goal isn't to rebalance the pain scales of the universe right. to make you hurt because I hurt. <laughs> the goal is to love. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we operating a system with that mentality? Are we are we trying to love, which Christians understand to mean to, to seek the good of another. Mm. Now, to seek the good of someone who's been wronged might look different than seeking the good of the person who's been wronged. But I don't get to pick one of those people and say, I'm going to love one of them and I'm not going to love the other one. Right. My obligation is to love all my neighbors. In fact, that's the whole point of the Good Samaritan story, that the lawyer wanted to pick neighbors and say, well, I get to love this one and not <laughs> this one, right? Like, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Do I have to go beyond the cul-de-sac? Do I have to go all the way three streets over to love people? Is it, you know, how can we constrain the neighborhood? And Jesus at the end of the story, after showing love that crossed the deepest ethnic boundary of that culture, looked at him and said, who was a neighbor? In other words, the question isn't, who are they, but who am I? Who, am I going to be the type of person who loves? And so I don't get to pick and say, well, I love crime victims. I mean, that's easy. As Jesus said, if you love those who love you, big whoop, everybody does that, right? What he, what he's, what he's saying is, will you love your enemies? Cause that's the hard part. Will mm -hmm. you love the people who've done you wrong? And, and the question is, so how do I do that? Cause the criminal justice system sets that up, right? You've got the wronged and the wrongdoer. And, and what I take from what Jesus is saying in the gospels is I got to love them both. And in fact, I can love them both because God doesn't have parts of him where part of him is just and part of him is loving. God is is love and God is justice. And so everything he does is both just and loving. And fundamentally, what I think it means to love both neighbors when it comes to the criminal justice system is to judge their cases accurately. Mm. Now, there's implications and in, in principles that I think flow from that, like due process is required as an implication of that, because since I don't have time machines and I'm not a mind reader and I'm not clairvoyant and I can't see through walls, the only way I'm going to judge your case accurately is through a process that we set up that surfaces and tests the relevant evidence. So due process is a necessary implication of my commitment to judge accurately. But fundamentally, what it means to love is to judge accurately. Impartiality is an implication of accuracy because I could have a system that desires to judge accurately and I could have a system with a process, but then if I have the process run by people who are biased, who are partial, I'm going to get inaccurate results. So impartiality is necessary to protect the process to ensure accurate results. Proportionality is necessary for accuracy because I could rightly determine who did right and who did wrong, and then I could inaccurately sentence them, meaning I could sentence them in a way that said their crime was more severe than it was or less severe than it was. So proportionality is speaking accurately not only about who did the right or wrong, but how wrong the wrong was. I can, and I need to punish consistently with the severity of the wrong. And then lastly, accountability is protecting accuracy with regard to the authorities, that the, uh, the obligation to act uh, and judge accurately, to do justice, so to speak, applies not only to the governed, like you or me, but also the governors, the people who are supposed to bear the sword against evildoers could end up 
bearing it inaccurately or unjustly. And so speaking accurately means speaking accurately about their wrongs in bearing the sword and holding the state and the state actors accountable when they act unjustly. So I think this principle of accuracy, which is the fundamental principle of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, has implications of due process, impartiality, accountability, and and proportionality. How are we doing? How's you know somebody might hear that and go, "Oh, yes, perfect." Is that is that what it looks like? <laughs> what would you say? Well, the way I try to answer that is by taking apart the various pieces of the justice system kind of Mm -hmm. one by one Mm -hmm. and saying, how is this particular feature of our system promoting or not promoting the goal of accuracy, due process, impartiality, proportionality, accountability? So I take, for example, jury selection. I mentioned before the ways in which the justice system was used to work an injustice, to to undo the effects of the war. And part, the primary way that occurred, one of the ways that occurred was through the manipulation of juries so that African-Americans would be systematically excluded so that African-Americans could be wrongly convicted and so that uh, whites who perpetrated violence against African-Americans could be wrongly acquitted. And so we have a long history of violating the principle of impartiality. We've 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 set up a system to have the decision makers be biased toward one group or another in our culture. And you might say, well, you know, that went away at some point. Right. Like in, in, in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court considered the case of. Curtis Flowers in a case called Flowers versus Mississippi, where um, Mr. Flowers had been six times tried for capital murder, two times the jury hung, four times he was convicted and sentenced to death. On his sixth conviction, you say, why six trials? Because the ones that did result in convictions and death sentences kept getting overturned for prosecutorial misconduct. The sixth case finally comes to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in a decision written by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, the court rules that the prosecutor had systematically, over the course of those six trials, used his what are called peremptory challenges to eliminate African-Americans from the jury on the basis of race. 2019, that decision was. So we still have this history of excluding African-Americans from juries, which I chronicle in my book. We still have that occurring even today, a principle of partiality or the principle of impartiality being violated in our justice system. So we can look at that one feature and say the way we are picking juries in the United States is violating a biblical principle of justice. So that's Mm. just one example I offer in the book. Following that question, I'm a listener and I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm compelled. And maybe besides like taking the social media and telling everybody to read your book, what are like, what, 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 are practical ways that are actually helpful to to engage in this work and conversation. Because I think I think it could be easy, right? Because most people listening probably aren't lawyers, and so it's like as they as we as we listen and are compelled and maybe motivated by the gospel, as we just said, it's like what are practical ways in our communities, in whatever the sphere of influence God has given us, that we can take steps towards this as a community. I'll give you three. In addition to taking to social media and telling everybody, (laughs) most definitely. (laughs) Number one, what I say is talk to your kids about this. Mm. You know, the way another generation will think better about justice than maybe we have 
is by talking to our kids about it. I mean, we talk at dinner table about all types of stupid stuff. And what I've tried to, even in the course of writing this book, talk to my kids about what I was thinking about and what I was writing about when I was working on the book. I want them to know what their dad thinks scripture teaches about justice. I dedicated the book to my kids because I want them to be better at this than I was. And hopefully their kids, my grandkids, will be better at it than they were, that we can that we can pass on better thinking about justice. So number one, like just talk to your talk to your kids about it if you have kids. Talk to your friends about it if you have friends, you know. Talk about it in your churches if you're a pastor or a Bible teacher. I think just helping people think better what what Romans 12 calls the renewing of our minds. That's communicated. That's a, that occurs through the through the means of grace of just teaching and talking to one another about it. So that's number one. Number two is really in two parts. So this is two and three is you can vote differently based on it. So by that, I mean, first, just like literally voting in elections. Criminal justice is one of the few areas where you, you have single issue elections. You know, you elect your district attorney or your county attorney, whatever you call it in your jurisdiction. You don't have to vote for your district attorney and what they think about Ukraine or abortion or like any number of other things. You're you're district attorneys running on one thing, criminal justice. And so you can isolate that issue and, and, and get information, go to town halls and try to determine, is this person pursuing justice in the way that I believe as a Christian justice should be pursued? And you can vote based on that. In a, we've seen an, a lot of elections, even in the country recently, where they talk about reform prosecutors winning. And I'm not here to talk about whether those are more or less aligned with criminal justice. But my point is, you've been able to see citizens in a very real way way, change those elections. A few motivated people can influence those elections if they get involved. And then the third point, another form of voting, is jury service. The single most common question I get asked as a lawyer is, how do I get out of jury service? I got a jury (laughs) summons in the mail. How do I get out of jury service? And what I want to say is, don't get out of it. Go be a Christian. Mm. Go be a Christian as a juror. If you don't do it, someone who believes in a different form of justice, perhaps, is going to do it in your place. Since August of 1989, with the advent of forensic DNA technology, 3,385 people have been exonerated after having been convicted of crimes they did not commit. They spent 30,000 years in prisons for crimes they did not commit. And because of our requirement of unanimous juries, back to what I talked about earlier, one one juror could have stopped those wrongful convictions. One juror, one person who said, I'm going to demand proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm going to insist on the certainty and the accuracy that God demands of us before we punish other people. One juror could stop that. And that one juror could be you. This is a unique privilege among all peoples in the world over the course of history. Very few people have had the privilege of jury service, and we shouldn't be throwing it away. We should be viewing it as a stewardship given to us by God as a particular people and say, I'm going to show up. It's going to be inconvenient, but I'm going to show up and I'm going to do God's justice, maybe on behalf of a victim who needs to hear the community say that they were wronged, maybe on behalf of a wrongly accused who needs someone to stand up and say, I'm going to stand against 11 other people who are looking at this case wrongly. But you can do that. Unique among people of the world, you have that opportunity. And so you don't have to worry about going to law school or becoming a police officer. Just show up when you get a jury summons and take the job seriously. Mm. Mm. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm a person that loves kind of the to talk about the worldview that scripture provides for us, because to me, I think it's just beautiful and powerful. And the deep wounds that exist in our country in the current moment because of issues of 
the justice system and the opportunity that we have right in front of us that you talk about sometimes we kind of sweep to the side because we see it as inconvenient or for whatever reason is that we have an opportunity to be a light, to push back the darkness in some very ordinary ways that are a privilege to us in our country, but allow us to live out the truth of the gospel every day and to be a transforming agent in our country, in our world, until the Lord returns. And to me, that just is captivating about the life we're called to as followers of Jesus. Yeah, amen. Well, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We we could talk more, but but I think the best thing to do is land the plane where you landed it just now, and then to commend people to read your book. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. Be sure to check the show notes to connect with us and our guests. See you next time.